Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works and mental illness and mental health with me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Now, if you use cash to pay for something in a shop, got your change, walked out, then realised they'd given you $10 too much, would you go back and return it? You're not going to get in trouble if you don't. You just took the money they gave you. So you can tell yourself it's their responsibility, not yours. Plus, it's a big shop. They probably make lots of money. But deep down, you kind of know you've done something wrong if you keep the 10 bucks, don't you? So what do you do? Here's an added dimension. If you take the money, knowing that you're not really entitled to it, what effect, if any, would that have on your mental health? If you return the money, what effect will that have on your mental health? Today, we're looking at the interaction between ethics and mental health. Is trying to lead an ethical life to have some principles, try to live by them, good for your mental health? Will it make you sleep better at night? Is being good, good for you? Or does it just make things really complicated and it's just better to leave it alone. To discuss this, very pleased to welcome Dr. Simon Longstaff, the Executive Director of the Ethics Centre. Welcome, Simon. Thank you. Thank you, James. Hello, Ian. Great to have you here, Simon, because, you know, ethics, James and I might go around in large circles and not progress. Yeah. When you've devoted your life, really, your professional life, mm. to thinking about ethics, teaching ethics, advising people, including me, on ethics, when did you first start thinking about it? You know, I mean, was it before you studied? Was it at school where you're a bit more ethical, ethically minded than everyone else? Um, I'm not sure if I was ethically. Look, I, what I do know is, well, I suspect, I don't actually know because I'm not sure I can remember a precise moment, is that uh, the effect of my mother dying when I was seven certainly focused my mind on questions like, how do these things happen? Why are they happening to me? Um, what's the effect of other people and things like that? So I started to wonder a lot more about a world which seemed to be less certain than perhaps I might have supposed before that occurred. And then I just was always interested in philosophy, really, and the branch of philosophy that particularly caught my attention was ethics. That's interesting because something like that happening at an early age can often prompt people into or out of religion yeah. rather than, you know, that's a more common, I would I would guess, reaction. Well, it, had, it almost had that effect on me, but part of the issue was that the reason why my mother died was because of religion. So she was a devout Catholic who was told that if she was to proceed with another pregnancy, she would die and the child would probably die. And because of her religious conviction, she decided nonetheless to have the child, knowing that that would be the effect. Wow. And as it happened, a year and a day after having the child, she uh, did die and the child lived though, which was great. But what had happened was in the course of this, and I only saw this when I was in my mid to late 30s and well and truly entrenched in the work that I'm doing, uh, I was given a letter that my mother had written when uh, she was told this news. She'd just come back from the doctor and she wrote to her sister in which she described this terrible dilemma that she faced in which she had to decide between proceeding with the pregnancy and thereby mm. consigning herself to death and leaving behind a husband that she loved and three children of which I was the eldest or continuing to act in a sense in conformance with her conscience. And so uh, she'd made that decision. And at the end of the letter, she writes of me standing there 
colouring in or doing something. Now, I don't know what happened. Uh, did the anguish of this woman uh, in some way transfer to me and I had a sense of it? Uh, all I knew was that by coincidence or other effect, there I was 30 years later providing precisely the service for people like my mother where yeah. they could go to talk about the ethical issues that she had no one to speak to about other than her sister in a letter at that time. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's extraordinary. So it did clearly, the manner of her death raised enormous ethical questions that you've been grappling with. Well, I could, be, I could be just sort of backcasting my yeah, story into yeah. that. Uh, or it could have been that there was something that transferred between uh, a mother and her firstborn child. I, I don't know. Yeah. But all I can say is that's what happened and this is what I've ended up spending my life doing, helping people like that. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So we're looking at the intersection of ethics and mental health. Ian, for me, in the getting too much change from a shop example, if I kept the money, I'd be $10 richer, that's a positive, but I'd, I'd feel bad. Like I'd think about it and it would negatively, I think for the next at least 20 seconds, four hours, no, <laughs> maybe two hours, I don't know, the next X hours make me feel like I kind of failed. You know, that was a test and I'd failed it. So that to me suggests there is a, definitely an intersection between the sort of ethics you, you, you bake into your life and your mental health. How, how would you say it? Yeah, how you feel about it. That's exactly the point. Some people in that situation describe go, excellent, great, I'm 10 bucks richer, can't mm. see the problem, luck on my side, you know, gone my way, feel good about it. You feel bad about it. So the feeling bad, I think, is really interesting in terms of, okay, what is it about that? What, what purpose does that serve? What, why, why, why do we feel bad about it? Like, what's the social purpose? Mm. Simon just gave this marvellous personal example of how you find yourself having a particular dilemma, a really big dilemma in your life, like the one he described about his mum, and maybe to think about my own mum who had many children and her life was on the line many times in relation to not being able to use contraception yeah. as directed by the church and then having to make this personal thing. What, what's the church? Like what's this social construction that sits around it that creates these rules? Like what sort of purpose does it serve? Why, why do humans do this kind of stuff? So I think they got to do with the social transaction, something we talk about a lot in this program, James. What is the, what's the social purpose? Like how does it make humans act better to have you feel good or bad about things that have impact on others? In your mm. 10 buck example, the other side of the transaction is 10 bucks worse off. <laughs> There's something to be said <laughs> for transactions that do benefit, that don't harm another. So, but they require they require this thing. How do you feel about it? They actually require you to feel good or bad. When you feel good about it, carry on. You feel bad about it, the guilt associated with it or the feeling you've done something wrong mm. leads to a different set of actions. So the linking of the two, how you come to link the two in, in development, how is it in socialisation? As, as we grow up in different things, we grow up in some church thing around you know, your own body and your own decisions or you grow up in these other transactions about what's right or wrong. How does that social thing happen and how does it become embedded in the way we feel about it? Because it's how you feel about those things in those exact moments you described that has an effect. For those who've grown up in some of those Catholic traditions that Simon was just talking about or some of us would know well, you know, you're meant to feel really bad. It isn't just a rational discussion. It was really interesting what Simon said about he's now in the world of trying to have a rational discussion with people to take the time to not just react to the situation but to try and think it through. I've got to ask Simon this. Once you've thought it through, 
do you reckon people feel differently about it? Well, when they've had time to think it through and not just react to the situation. Oh, so you take the money and then yeah. 15 minutes later you think, oh, what did I do? I feel terrible. Is well, that what you mean? Well, I think you said, but I think people have immediate emotional reactions to the situation they find themselves in and they're feeling mm. we've been discussing things about the Australian cricket team, for example, or other incidents in sport or other incidents in politics. Somebody's in, and, you, and you immediately think, you don't think, you immediately feel that that was right or wrong in some way. Then you've got to sort of think it through. And what I'm interested in, Simon, is when so when people think it through, do they really feel differently about it? Or so are they already predetermined yeah. mm. what they really think the outcome? And reverse engineer, okay. reverse engineer yeah. their thoughts. So there are three big ideas that we need to touch on uh, arising out of all of that. The first of those ideas is to do with the mental health issue and its extent to which one can actually be damaged by a realisation that you've done the wrong thing. And it's a phenomenon called moral injury. Uh, it's been known about for decades. It originally came out of uh, the military where people would look back on their own lives and realise that they'd been engaged in conduct which was completely at odds with their own core values and principles. And the damage that a person can do to themselves is so great that they can actually commit suicide. That's the ultimate point at which that can go. So that's the first thing. Moral injury is something which comes upon you after the event usually when you look back and say, how could I have possibly done that. That sounds a little bit, Simon, like, uh, sorry, in, like post-traumatic stress. Yes, yeah, so it's related to it. Really right. related to it. Is no. it the same thing, Simon? Not always. Okay. No. Okay. No. I think it's a really important distinction that Simon's actually making because the classic thing happens with soldiers and other people comes out of the military. I've been involved in discussing this and actually in relation to really interesting issues now in the Australian public service and other areas where people have believed at the time that they have acted correctly and consistent with particularly the instructions or the rules of the organisation. They've gone to war and fought for Australia. They've instituted what the minister said. They've taken a position forward. But but on reflection, they've gone, this is not consistent with what I believe to be mm. proper. So it's not the same as the post-traumatic right. stress thing. It's a really interesting, I think, concept in the mental health world to differentiate moral injury from because of its effect, then what Simon just alluded to, its dramatic effect on people's mental health. It's a reconceptualization of their action, which then causes the mental health problem. Yeah, so it needs to be distinguished also from moral fatigue, which is where people are constantly having to make very difficult decisions and are slowly worn down. Right. Um, but the king, the, the, the worst of them is moral injury, and we'll come back to that in a moment because it's entirely preventable too. Uh, well, almost entirely preventable by the kind of processes you engage in when you have the first inkling. The second point that came up was in relation to your initial intuitive response to the circumstances, whether it's the extra $10 in change or other things. And one of the things we have to come to understand is that although intuition is very useful, there are lazy intuitions which are based in error. So I'll give you a kind of a, an analogous example. You, when learning to drive a car, will typically be taught to put your foot on the brake when you're heading towards danger. Yet that is the worst thing to do if you're on an icy road uh, heading towards it. If you're in a skid, in most cases, the best thing to do is not to put your foot on the brake, but gently to accelerate. Now, your intuition says, slam your foot on the brake, but it's exactly not to do that. So one of the things you can do in order to become better skilled at dealing with skids 
on icy or muddy tracks is to actually practice mm. in a place where you develop the advanced driving skills to know how to handle that so that you ch- train your intuition. So you'll still have an intuitive response, I'm on an icy road, it'll still be a rapid and timely intervention, but it won't be the wrong thing. So that's the second thing to think about. And that goes to the third thing, which emerged from what you were saying, which is to do with the intersection between reason, will, and feeling or affect. Now, the best thinking I think about this can be found in one of the analogies that Plato offers about the charioteer. Because what Plato says, and we're going right back now, thousands of years now to the dawn of uh, at least the Western philosophy, is that if you have a chariot, Mm -hmm. it's no point having someone standing in the chariot without any horses. It just won't go anywhere. You're going to be sitting there looking like a bit of a dill. (laughs) Uh, If you have horses without any charioteer, then they're just going to run wild. They'll just sort of go over the edge of a cliff or something like that. So in this model, the two horses which pull the chariot are on the one hand emotion and the other is will. Okay. But in order to have them do their job in ways which are constructive and not destructive, you need reason as the charioteer. So that's why often when you hear people having an intuitive or emotional response, it's an absolutely authentic response, but it's not necessarily well grounded. Like this has actually truly happened to me. I was a kid staying in my grandfather's house in Carlingford and I woke up before dawn one morning and I looked up and saw this big spider sitting on the wall just above where my head was. And I don't particularly like big hairy spiders. And the thought of my confronting it, because I must have been about three or four, something of that, you know, I thought, no way, it'll jump on me. But if I go to sleep, It'll crawl down onto my face and terrifying. who wants that to have Terrifying. So I lay there for it must have been 20 minutes staring at the spider <laughs> as it stared at me until with dawn I came to realise that what I'd been staring at was a shadow cast by a tassel on a blind across the other <laughs> side of the room. Now, my, my fear, my reaction was well-founded. Yeah. But it was based on a mistaken belief about the facts of the situation and I, I was operating in error, a bit like suddenly throwing your foot on the brake when you're sliding towards a tree or yeah. a cliff or something like that. And so what you want to put all these things together, what you want to try and do in order to involve avoid the kind of profound moral injury that, that Ian was talking about, which we both understand because we both have to deal with, with its risk, is you need to be able to have these things properly understood so people can put in place the mechanisms by which they protect themselves. Now, that's a very negative account of this because I'm sure you were also interested in thinking, well, how does an ethical life lead to pleasant outcomes rather yeah. than merely the avoidance of harm? But that's maybe Ian or you have got some thoughts on where we've got to so far. There's a lot there. Yeah. So we discuss a lot through the consequences. I'm really interested, of course, in the kind of what's under the hood. The um, Simon's just described it in sort of philosophical terms, you know, the affect or the, the drive and the will as a will being a really interesting concept itself. Mm, mm. And then the reason that goes on to try and rationalize these things. The way normally we normally put it is the immediate emotional reactive kind of response is instinctive. I wouldn't say intuitive, it's kind of instinctive. It's reflex. You see a spider, <laughs> you've got to do something because you perceived it to be a spider. That's a perceptual thing. Mm. Once you've perceived it to be, you've, you've coded it as that, there's a set of responses. So the fear responses we talk about all the time are built in. We share them with all other species. They're instinctive. They're f- flight or fight or actually flop. There's a variety of things you can do. 
can flop in the bed, <laughs> do nothing. You just stay. Just like they're staring. You stay there until you figure, <laughs> yeah, yeah. figure out what to do next. And then we have this other thing, which is developed in humans and become more and more elaborate in humans compared with all other species, our capacity to contemplate that, to think it through. And, and it's slower and it takes time. Mm. And then you've got to bring back all those things that have influenced that way that you actually understand the world and think about the world. And this constant, I would say, sort of interaction between thought, as we discussed many times, James, and emotionality or instinctive responses is what humans are dealing with all the time. Now, normally, the spider, the car braking, the whatever else, there's an immediacy about that. These more complex social interactions are more complex, but we still have feelings about them. Interestingly, we have these feelings like guilt, like feeling bad about it. It Was it the right thing to do, an internal world that goes with it, Mm. that has developed? And I'd suggest that's based in the social world in which we exist. Does that feeling of guilt come back to moral injury that you were talking about? I mean, when you said about moral injury, I still think about when I was in kindergarten pushing one of my friends over and they tripped and hurt themselves. And I still think about that and how guilty Mm. I felt about it and how terrified I was of getting in trouble and Mm. how I couldn't understand why I'd done it. But that's kind of a good thing, I guess, because it would have caused me at the time to be more careful about my behaviour in the future. Well, it it is. it's It's a very useful thing to do. And yes, there is much of that in moral injury. But the other dimension of moral injury is the what I call the if only component. Mm. Oh, so I hadn't. If, well, if only I had asked this question, if only I'd thought about that, if only I had realised, if only something. And so it's not just the fact that you have become through your deeds someone that you never thought you were, and this is revealed to you in a moment of clarity, but also the recognition that it was not necessary that you be that. And this goes to one of the points that um, emerged from what Ian was saying. Yes, we do have this animal aspect to our character in which we instinctively respond, fight, flight, flop, all the other things. But unlike other creatures, we are simply not determined by those things. We are perhaps uniquely, we just don't know enough about other creatures, but we've got an ability which we can evidently see to transcend the demands of instinct or desire. So there may be a lion on a veldt hunting an impala, but I very much doubt that it stops and says to itself, oh, gosh, I'm hungry, but what about its children? It just goes and catches it, kills it, and eats it because it's driven by instinct to do so. As we do. With, well, we don't. With That's men. the thing. No, no, but you think about we? Well, well, we do. But I do. But, but, I, yeah, I don't think about the chicken. Yeah, but, but if somebody explained to you something about the circumstances of the species being depleted and things like that, you may very well choose not to do it. So even as we're here now, there are people who are – for example, there'll be somebody who's close to starvation and there'll be food right in front of them. There'll be no one there to restrain them, to catch them, to cause them embarrassment or whatever, but they won't take it simply because they say it's wrong. It's not mine. Uh, and there'll be other people facing terrible danger, a bit like a soldier who isn't actually protecting their own property, their own family, but they've promised to stand steadfast and they will use their courage to overmaster all those instinctive responses to run away and find somewhere to be safe. And so because we know we have that ability, that's part of the, the problem for us. We know we can do that. We experience this. And so when we don't use it and wake up down the track and say, oh, how did I come to do that? That's where the damage is done because it wasn't inevitable. So so two people, Ian Hickey, one who is confronted with a scary event where they feel like they've got to save their family from a fire or they're a soldier and they've got to stand where they are and protect somewhere. 
one of them runs away, one of them stands fast. Uh, they both survive. Is the one who runs away going to have worse mental health than the one who does, in their view, the right thing? Well, you just said or the, you everything did, else. No, you just said the key thing. In their view, what was the right thing to do? You can yeah. make a rational argument for either set of behaviours. You can justify in the social world either. But, but the question you're asking is, how do you feel about it yourself? Yeah. Not not necessarily you, what you explained you to others. If you did the wrong thing. If you think doing either of those things I mean, things I've never done it wrong, myself. If so you think – you, you can imagine a situation for both the outcomes you just described where a person may think it was the wrong thing to do. For example, in defending everyone else, they killed somebody else to do it. They may come to the conclusion after the fact that even though it was entirely justified, they feel they've done a wrong thing in killing yes. another person. The one who ran away could say – Look, it's entirely justified. I survived. That's what you should do. It's distinctive. But it, from my perspective, it was the wrong thing to do. So this right, wrong, the, the, the choices that are made and then after the fact, the analysis of it, is it right or wrong, has a big mental health effect. Mm. Yeah, because you either you know, come to the conclusion, I'm a really good guy. I did the right thing. I've acted morally. Yes. I've acted and I can – and it makes sense. In other words, the rationality fits with the way I feel about it. When you're in trouble is when the rationality of it doesn't fit. Despite what you're telling yourself about the justification for doing it, you feel bad about well, it. Well, is, 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 doesn't that come back to, and I think we've done an episode on this, cognitive dissonance, where yes. you're trying desperately to justify everything you've done, but deep down you know you can't, so well, you've got your mind fighting itself. Well, humans are pretty good at this, okay? We can just about justify. We can just about come up with a rational excuse or rationality, an explanation, but whether we actually are comfortable with it, whether it actually fits with what we feel or not, determines this exact... But that's exact... what a cognitive dissonance causes all sorts of... Yeah. So from a mental health point of view, you can't sit there with that. You can't sit there with that. Forget what everyone else feels about it. Forget what everyone else says. Yeah. You can't sit with it yourself because you've got two things going on. Yeah. Well, there are rational... some people who never experience this at all. There are sociopaths and psychopaths. Oh, who... it'd be great I mean, I mean like, like, there are people, honestly, who do the most terrible things from our... Well, at least I would think so. Yeah. And they sleep perfectly well at night. They... Mm. You know, there's no moral economy. They're, they're probably wealthy and happy and all healthy and, and all the rest. So you, we shouldn't pretend that there's that everybody is susceptible to this. Some people harden. And there are other people who choose to escape any engagement with this at all by committing themselves to an entirely habitual life where they just follow certain norms established by others. And, you know, they, they, they have a set of habits. They don't live an examined life where you could be exposed to this. Yes. And some people say, well, it's all too difficult anyway. There's a lot of complexity. You know, these issues, there's often dilemmas. Which is the right thing? So I'll, I'll either go into the arms of the fundamentalist who says, don't worry about it. It's okay. Not too, you know, it's complicated. You don't have to decide. I'll decide for you. Or there's the hedonistic response, which is, oh, let's get pissed and maybe someone else will sort it out by the time <laughs> we sober up. So but there's think, lots of escape things, but not everybody has that. And that's, and I think actually- And that, presumably it's a sliding scale. Well, well, yeah. And I, my own personal view is that as a human being, if you completely avoid this or try to, yes. there's something about the experience of your humanity, which is diminished, that you, yes. you sort of miss out on. But with it comes risk. Being human is a risky thing because unlike the lion on the veldt or others, you are susceptible to the moment where you look back and say, oh, is that who I am? I never thought so. Can I ask you about people at the other end of the scale? There are some people who agonise over the right thing to do over every little tiny thing. They, for example, drive their family mad, recycling 
every single scrap of paper and uh, an enormous amount of effort into creating what objectively is a tiny, tiny benefit. Not the way most people do, right? Do, do a recycling, it, it's going to the nth. It's uh, avoiding driving the car for 15 minutes to instead take eight buses for three hours so to mm. decrease emissions. Can leading an ethical life push too far actually get in the way of living life? It could. It, it Look, it very much depends on what's going on in that kind of case. So an ethical life is by definition an examined life. It's That's why it's different to say a, a merely moral life where you might follow a set of norms of core values and principles, but they're simply those which you've inherited from someone else or you just follow as a matter of habit. Mm -hmm. So yes, it might be good that people are habitually generous or um, you know, truthful and things like that, but it's not the achievement of an ethical life, which is where you actually think about it. But to think about it is to also recognise that there are certain balances that need to be achieved mm. and that one needs to have a conscious sense of what you are doing for yourself and in in relationship to others because it's always in relationship to others that these things are being engaged. So a person who uh, is looking at what they're doing and they say, well, my very small difference may not change the world, but that's not the most important thing, that my intention is the thing that matters here. And even if it's ultimately futile, nonetheless, that's the life that I've chosen to live. That might be a commendable thing. If it's a person who is just locked into a set of habits, almost like a pathology where they constantly doing something just to be doing it, then it could become a kind of counterproductive and damaging thing because it's not really based on a proper understanding. Mm. So you'd have to you, you have to get quite closely attentive to what's going on in those circumstances and the individual has to have that degree of self-knowledge to be able to make an assessment rather than getting into these these patterns which are ultimately destructive of their well-being. And that sort of Microanalysis of every little thing you do. What did I did I behave in the right way then? I mean, it's good to an extent, but going too far. It, nah, it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Yeah. I'd like to go back to the Simon's two extremes if I could, because I think really interesting. The psychopathic one, and the <laughs> yeah. as one extreme, psycho sociopathic one, and the other almost the off to the monastery. You know, I'll just yeah. follow a set of rules. I will not engage with the complexity of life. I'll just follow the rules. Let's call them Ian and James. <laughs> In no particular order. <laughs> In, In no, no particular, particular order. order. In no particular order. Okay. The interesting one, because I, I think they are both extremes. Yeah. You know, and, you, and there are people, and you talked about the spectrum. There are people like either end of the spectrum. You go off to the monastery, there's no anxiety, you follow the rules, you live a rather low anxiety life. Yeah. There's nothing to be decided. There are no challenges. There's no complexity. There's no grey. You get up at a certain point of the day, you do the same things over and over again, and you're safe. So it's a low anxiety state. The other one doesn't worry about anything. It's all to my gains. Oh, what a fun. I'd suggest both of these are unusual. They are right opposite ends of the spectrum. Most of us, the great majority of humans, live in the middle. And the great majority of what we deal with is grey. It's complex. Mm. So uh, Simon's notion of an examined life is really interesting, the extent to which people reflect on it or not. You've raised the key issue through this episode. What causes people to reflect, I'd suggest, is feeling bad about it. Yes. Well, is actually finding themselves constantly, I find myself most days, in complex situations thinking, now what? What exactly is my own motivation for doing X, Y, Z? What's my rational explanation for it? Mm. How do I feel about it at the end of the day in a complex world? 
of complex choices, complex social interactions, and contested ideas. You're wrong. You're right. No, you're wrong. No, I'm right. You know, so the examination personally, and then the examination in the shared domain, in the public space, which is contested a lot, is a really interesting world in which the rest of us live. So philosophy reveals one remarkable liberating fact, and that is that ethical perfection is impossible. Now, I'll give you a very simple domestic example. You might have someone you love very much who comes home one night with, I don't know, new haircut, clothes, whatever it happens to be. A beard. They walk in and they say, yeah, hey, how do I look? And you look <laughs> at them and you think, oh, no. <laughs> and yet you personally might be committed to truth and to compassion with equal weight. So imagine now truth is pulling, you know, like a horse pulling in one direction and in the equal and opposite direction, compassion, because you know if you tell them the truth, you'll hurt them. And imagine, and this is theoretically possible, that in the perfect form of a dilemma, truth pulls with 10 units of force in one way and compassion with 10 unit force in the other. So you're ripped apart. Well, what? no, what philosophy finally realises here, that there is no God, no philosopher, no algorithm, no being that can provide an answer to that question, that it is in principle undecidable. And yet human beings are still left to decide. And human doing, beings faced with this might do something like just go up and give them a big hug, say nothing, just hug That's them. So, <laughs> so anyway, the point about it is once you know that ethical perfection is impossible, yes. then there's a, a maximum from Immanuel Kant that is invoked, which is that ought implies can. You're not um, obliged to do that which is impossible. And if ethical perfection is impossible, then that's not for us. And then you can let it go. Because some people get into these terrible knots because they're trying to find the perfect response. Right. When in fact, what is possible for humans is a lesser but nonetheless heroic achievement. And that is, firstly, that you engage with these issues with sincerity, mm. that you don't just pretend that they're unimportant, that nothing there to be seen. So this is this middle space that Ian was mm. talking about. And secondly, that you try to be skillful in what you do, that you actually don't be careless in the way that you approach them and that you look for the kind of support. So I mentioned that moral injury is for the most part preventable because you can actually allow people, create circumstances for them to never have to confront the if only by precasting what you're going to do, testing, a bit like on that skid pad and things like that, going in oh. and getting help where people help you to frame things to see them perhaps with dimensions you've never considered before. That's what we do with our ethical well, service. Well, that leads me to, to to something that hopefully will be of value to listeners. A lot of people aren't confronted with big ethical dilemmas all the time, but when they are, they kind of have no, and I put myself in this category, no structure to work it out. It's just like, oh my goodness, I've got this dilemma. I've just got $10 from the shop. How do I work out what what the right thing to do is. I've got this gut feeling, but I've also got this desire to keep the money. How do I weigh up the competing things? I remember we, maybe 15 years ago, we had a incredibly useful conversation. I got offered a speaking job by a tobacco company. Mm. I had no idea how to work out whether to take it or not. I rang up you and you said, what about the front page test? And I said, what's that? He said, would you be happy for it to be on the front page that you were taking money from a tobacco company? I said, God, no. And he said, well, there you go. And so I rang up and said, no. So you gave me a structure, but how do people oh. go about creating an ethical framework to, to 
push their decision through? Well, there's two things. Firstly, I mean, if people do have dilemmas, they can always come to the Ethics Centre. We offer the world. No, no, no. We, it's a free national helpline. It's been going. No, it's a great idea. <laughs> I wish yeah. people go to the Ethical Centre more often than your average psychologist down the road. <laughs> yeah, because some of this, yeah, this is a different. So domain. this has been going for uh, 33 years now, 32 years. Uh, and it's a wonderful service for anybody, irrespective. And there's no charge. No, it doesn't matter what your means are. And everyone from cabinet ministers in the federal government to farmers and people like that use Share it. Share a few names. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like. So you can do that. And that'll give you a – that's a whole structured process which introduces you to a range of different frameworks, lenses, if you like, for looking at issues because – there are many different perspectives other than the one that you probably bring as your default setting mm. for reviewing things. Um, but then the other thing is about trying to become, without going to talk to someone else, actually become clear about your own core values yes. and your own principles. And how do you start doing Well, doing you, you, you begin by asking Google, yourself- Google, what are my core values? <laughs> no, 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 it's, 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 it's more simple. So values basically is just a word we have for the things that we think are good, yep. the things that we would choose if we were unconstrained. So if you have a, an apple and an orange where we are now and um, someone walks into the room, there are only four possible choices in relation to those ap that apple and that orange. An apple, an orange, both or none. Right. That completely exhausts the four choices. So if someone walks in and picks up the apple and starts to eat it, we know, assuming it's an unconstrained choice, that they're doing so because they believe the apple to be good or better than those other three choices. Don't know why, but we do know that. Well, you will know of yourself that there are times when you will choose something without, without constraint. And that will tell you something about what you think is good. It might be trust. Okay. It could be something like hope. The various things you'll pick could be success, lots of different things that you could choose. And equally, there are principles which shape how you go about getting the things that are good. So a person might be in a culture like China, for example, where harmony is highly prized, in fact, more prized than something like liberty. And they might say, uh, what, what's your one of your values? Oh, we really value harmony. People say, oh, that doesn't make sense. And then they say, well, how are you going to achieve harmony? Oh, we're going to kill everybody who disagrees with us. <laughs> <laughs> and someone's going to say, well, that's not right. You know, yeah. you shouldn't. Uh, so there'll be a principle somewhere. And, you know, they typically have quite thin content, things like do unto others as you would have them do unto you or only do those things you'd be proud to see on the front page of the, the media and things of that kind. Yeah. There's a whole range of these things because there are equally there are principles like do unto others before they do it to you or don't get oh, caught. You know, so they're right. not all, get they're, them they're, before yeah, they yeah. get you. But yeah. you, if you can find these things for yourself, mm. those things which at the core shape what you think is to be good or to do what is right – then once you've got that, it becomes a basis for calibrating what you do. And there's other things you can do beyond that. But those are things you can do by self-reflection, yes. by conversation with others, by thinking about the sorts of situations you might encounter, little hypotheticals that you put to yourself, like the $10, why would I be feeling? You know, and, and to mm -hmm. go back to Ian's point about an intuitive response, you might say, well, why, why, why is my gut reaction like that? What's it telling yes. me about some of the things that I hold? And and do I really commit to those in these circumstances rather than just live with the feeling with that understanding from what it derives? I'd like to go back to the front page test because mm. that actually invokes like – no. It invokes no, – I'm involved with newspapers this week. I find you myself in a situation. Have, you think well, I should have done the job for the debate? Just well, make no, sure no, you're no, answering what the question – it's not what would be popular. It's what would I be proud to see. What would I be prepared, in my case, prepared to defend even though I'll be criticised for it? It brings in mm. course the social dimension – a newspaper, a journalist has mm. taken an attitude about something. Apparently, well, not all newspapers are the same. I found myself in various <laughs> uh, ends of the political spectrum in, uh, in the, the media world. Usually on the same issue. Usually on the same issues. 
on on a whole lot of things, and and different groups have different views and they have different agendas at at times. So I quite often find myself on the other side of something, and people say, "Well, we're not going to do X because it could be on the front page of the whatever, and it could cause us embarrassment, or we'll have to defend it." Simpler to avoid it, best to avoid it. Right this week, I'm having one of those best to avoid it. I'm going to hang on a second. Just avoiding the issue because it will be contested mm. and, and others will express strong views opposed to it. In the world I'm in, there are all sorts of debates all the time. What's the relationship between the kind of research I'm involved in and the people it affects? What's the relationship between so-called public and private sectors, public and private funding, for-profit, not-for-profit, as if they're as good and bad in really black and white terms, often, and then amplified in its social groups and played out. Now, I suggest they're great examples of the problem avoided because it might embarrass you. Yeah, but that's that's a great example of a real problem, but it's also the misapplication of the principle. Oh, I agree with that. The, the, but I the, think- the principle about would you be proud to see it fully disclosed is about is this something, the thing itself that you should or should not be doing, is it right or wrong? But then whether or not you should be prepared to defend it is a different question. And that comes back to Another thing, it would be around the value of courage. If you don't have the courage of your convictions, if that's not anywhere in your ethical set of values and principles, then you are likely to run away from speaking about or even doing the things you believe to be right, having discerned it, for example, if you applied that principle. And that's why having principles without values is not enough, just as not having values without principles. And our society is very good at recognising the need for both. You'll often hear people or organisations declare these are our values, totally silent about their principles. Uh, Or occasionally you'll see some principles totally unrelated to values. And it's the sense of these things being combined together that gives you the the complete framework by which you can make the choices to live. But also the front page test, like for the example I gave you about – uh, being offered money to speak at a tobacco company function, what if it had been, like, it was a few thousand dollars, but what if it had been a few million dollars? Not that it would have been, but what if it had been and I could have then said, this is life-changing for me, plus I can give a million dollars oh. to a charity. Like, like I yeah, guess but what if I'm you, saying but if, you, is, if that was the case, let's suppose yeah. you, you brought yourself to believe that this is something you would be entirely proud to do because of those contingent benefits. No, I'd still feel bad about it. Oh, no. Well, that, no, well then the principle... <laughs> then I'd want the money. But then that's where you would be risking the moral injury, you see. You right. might be then sitting back in your gold-plated bathroom some years down the track, reading about the devastation that had been caused by the tobacco industry marketing to some of the most vulnerable people in the world, and you suddenly th- sit there as you look up from your bathwater and realise, <laughs> I was complicit in driving that. And you may very well at that point say all the gold-plated taps in the universe aren't enough to allay my sense of guilt at having been complicit. Hmm. And that may be very well where you start to have a much less happy life than you would otherwise have done. It's a really good example, I think. Desire, you know, desire can be ratcheted up. <laughs> Your $1,000 versus a yeah, million yeah. dollars, you know. Whew, this, could be, this could be really nice. You know? <laughs> yeah. $10 million. I was watching some golf over the weekend. You know, people who paid a lot of money to go work for the Saudis in recent times. Hundreds of millions compared with staying in the particular thing. I think it's a classic example of exactly that. In some sense, at what price would you give away the principle? Mm. The tobacco industry one's a very good example. I think, again, 
that's really the issue. Would you be prepared to defend it? Now, and a lot of people would. People do work for the tobacco industry. Yeah, there are they people do. who have jobs and they're quite content that that's entirely reasonable, that that's a legal industry, that they are happy with it because they don't come to the same conclusion. So in our society, I think they recognise people do come to different conclusions. Mm. Others, well, I others, actually bumped into another comedian at the time who said, oh, I did a gig you didn't want. I said, what was that? And he said it was the that one. one. And I said, yeah, I didn't give a, I didn't give a stuff. But you made it. I think this, this is the interesting thing. What did you say about him? Did you say he was wrong? No, I just thought we're different. And there's He's the a difference. nice guy. There, well, well, he may not have or may not have thought about it for all we know. Yeah, yeah least, that's right. Maybe just said, oh, it's a gig. You know, yeah. And as I say, there are some people who don't think about it. They're the yeah. same. But they may have also thought about it, Simon. They may, have, they may have said, one hears this all the time. Tobacco industry is a legal industry. Yep. It right. operates within the it's rules and the laws of the society, which is the agreed way that we – now, different people within the society, in the world I'm in, the medical research, we made some decisions some years ago, you know, tobacco industry is largely out. Alcohol, contested. Food industry, contested. Other aspects, still contested. And within that world, people come to different conclusions. Now, the second bit is, are you prepared yourself? And I think Simon raised a really important principle, I think he was one of transparency. <laughs> You know, you're happy about it as long as nobody else knows. <laughs> but actually, mm. if you have to defend in the public domain, oh, well, that's obviously the wrong because now I'm going to be criticised. I'm not going to feel bad about what I decided. I'm going to feel bad about the fact that people are criticising me or it's been outed. So I think in our modern life, the, the issue around transparency, you know, would you be able to defend you and, and still feel good about it despite the fact you're now so subject to social criticism and, and are much more contested and others will disagree with you, which is really interesting, I find, that end up with people contesting, and but then the moralism of it, you're right, I'm wrong, we're the morally good, you're the morally bad, quickly gets laid over the top in social group pressures, in social terms, rather than the thinking it through, which is what Simon's been really emphasising, a process of thinking these through at a personal level and then perhaps within the groups in which you operate. I think I remember reading somewhere, I can't remember where it was now, but apparently there's studies that have been done to show, for example, that there is no culture in the world which approves of bullies taking food out of the hands of you know weaker children for example right that that there are certain Universal. aspects of the human condition that recognize that some things are fundamentally wrong and certainly in developmental psychology this sense of right and wrong emerges very very early in children mm. incredibly young you know you're talking about 2 years old and before so the capacity there's a kind of a sense of fairness and other things and I think the other side of what we've dwelt less on is the positive elements that come from acting in conformance with your own values and principles and hopefully those themselves aligning to some of these fundamental things that you occasionally do something where it's an act which is of very little moment to you but to another person they really appreciate the fact that you just stopped and said hello or yes. gave them the $10 back and didn't take advantage of their mistake or things like that. And there's no doubt about it when you do that, that the delight on the face of the other person mm. at having been treated with this kind of fundamental respect that they mattered enough to be acknowledged or to have their error recognised and made good. Well, I don't think we should underestimate how powerfully positive that can be as well. Um, and it doesn't require that you have to be some saintly character constantly going around doing it. It's enough that when you attend to it and pick up that opportunity that you see that, that I think it's a strong affirmation of our instinctive 
desire to act well in that sense. Well, I, yeah, I, I think it's really important to not call that instinctive. I call it built in. In fact, really right. interesting studies genetic. of, well, built in to our whole being. Isn't that genetic? Let's just say, I've got to go to the trans species. Built in will do. I'll go to the trans species bit here because a lot of study has gone on in quite evolved primates, the extent to which they have pro-social behaviours. Mm-hmm. And some would interpret these as values. Some would interpret, have gone as far as to interpret this as kind of religion. They clearly do things that are very similar to humans in a pro-social way. That, that sort of giving, which we would call volunteering, that sort of giving back, seeing the smile on the face, you didn't have to do it, mm. but there's a very strong reinforcement for pro-social behaviours. And a lot of it sits around the point that Simon just made. It has to do with the rearing of children, the perpetuation of the species. All the primates share in common very vulnerable children when they're born. And there's a whole lot of group behaviour required for their survival, quite different to a lot of other mammals even in the way it's evolved. This requires a whole sort of transactions that must be reinforced by behaviour, and they must be shared. It's not just what one individual does, it's what the group does that ensures the survival. Mm. So a lot of people would argue from an evolutionary point of view, a lot of this stuff is actually built in. It's built into the not just the instinct. It, I mean, obviously other primates do have cognition. They're thinking about what's going on. They're evaluating the environment as and, and learning and applying that to future like we do. We don't know quite in the same way that we do it, but they're clearly using cognition in addition to their emotional, reactive, instinctive bits. So the whole, when I say the whole thing is built in. So this pro-social stuff, and I'd say this does underpin what we call then values and this interaction between cognition and instinctiveness. When you say built in, I mean, you've said on this podcast many times there's only two th- places. You keep saying that. Genetics and environment, but yeah, they're the two. Well, I got it from you. I keep saying it back. We're born with the genetic. Is he verbaling you? He's verbaling me. He's verbaling me because I also say the genetics genetics is just the architectural plan. It's not the built thing. And again, as you go to primates, et cetera, the the period of development between being conceived, the whole intrauterine environment, and then the development to a fully independent being is a long period. And so genetics is the architectural plan. What happens in life, what actually you're exposed to, the environment then determines yeah. how that is built. It's not mm. simply genetically determined. So it's the interaction determined. between. Yeah, so the, to get to that from conception to that functioning reproductive adult obviously does not happen just according to genetics. It's got a plan. So, you know, that's and, the species bit. Yeah, there's, the, there's nature, there's the genetics, there's the epigenetic effects of that. And then there's the for the humans and perhaps for other primates, we just don't know. So I've talked to Jane Goodall about this and she thinks that there are a number of primates that approximate our own capacity in this. Wow. But even in ignorance, we know truly of ourselves, as I was mentioning before, that we have this additional ability not simply to operate according to the programmed requirements of genetics or nature or its intersection, but to get to a point where we make conscious choice. Hmm. And that's how we start to shape our environment. In fact, the most powerful force on this planet is human choice, limited only by the laws of nature and sometimes not even by that because we affect them. So it's a really interesting thing for us as part of our maturity, we might start off by simply following the habits of our parents, our family, our culture, uh, whether it's encoded in religion or in cultural practices. But at some point, every one of us, if we're minded so to do, has the opportunity to step back and say, well, are those the values and principles that I choose to live by? Is that the kind of person Mm -hmm. I want to be? And then to what extent can I ensure that the actions I take accord with that? To to what extent, Simon, and this is really interesting because you're a bit with James here on the what I think and what I do and what I choose. I'm a bit more on the people make choices within social groups, within all sorts of other sets of constraints. 
and and shared beliefs and then you know what's in a common good and and ideas there's a there's another kind of dimension i think to humans and and to the evolved primates at the extent to which that consciousness that choice thing <laughs> is being strongly affected by the social group oh kind there's, of, there's no doubt about it fix of it it grows out of that but but the point about um, personal autonomy which i yep. i do believe in is that you are influenced but not necessarily determined by that. For example, we know that there are people who grow within very solid communal environments who become outliers. So typically you think about the prophets of old. They stood against their societies. They mm. offered a mm. different perspective. Mm. They sometimes claimed divine insight or it could have been the application of their own reason. We, you know, we can unpack that. Someone like a Socrates going back if you take a secular view of this, who stood against his whole society by challenging their assumptions. These, these people are there and we all have that capacity. We might not choose to exercise it. We may not, not have that confidence, but it's an intrinsic attribute of what I think it means to be human to be able to do that, which means we might affirm them. It's not to say that it necessarily leads to a rejection. You might step back and say, actually, everything that my society, its norms, its practices are things which I want to affirm, but not because it's just the dead hand of something which has been bequeathed to me, but because I consciously choose now to have this. So I live that autonomous commitment to a communal life. So we discuss constantly in this podcast that for good mental health, you require two things. One is personal autonomy. Mm -hmm. You actually have to need to, be able to gauge exactly what you're talking about. But the other is actually strong social connectedness. Yes. You actually, to be able to have good mental health, you need to function as part of social groups. And these are interesting, and I don't I made it clear here, the social connection thing is not, not – and personal autonomy is not the same as individualism. No. And social connection isn't about being – James James always says he's happy to live alone. I'm going, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> you know, I'd like to be part of functional interactive groups. You know? And I'd suggest that for most of us, this is the kind of – Nature being human. On the one hand, I need autonomy. If I'm not autonomous, mental health goes out the window. If I'm not socially connected, it goes out the window. But there are a lot of situations in which those two things, the Socrates one's a fascinating example, you know, right to the end of your own, you know, bring about your own death because you're not going to fit in because yeah. you're taking a particular view, as, as many people have, to take that, okay, my capacity to determine what I believe, even up to costing me my own life, I'm going to put on the line. Others... You know, very much on the social connection thing. I'm going to go with what the group, what what keeps me most connected to, and what not, I, just, not just influenced by, but yeah. actually connected to the values of that group. I mean, I'm not going to judge one being yeah. superior to the other, but I do think that the social connections are stronger for having been chosen rather than merely being imposed, a, a, yeah, imposed yeah. or a brute fact of your existence. And it, it look clearly throughout history, people have chosen different lives. You know, people who are living in barrels and in desert fathers and things. I mean, they're, they're, these are the exceptions. Let's be clear. These are the exceptions. These are the exceptions. I, these are not the way most. You said no, no. you wouldn't talk about my years in the barrel. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, but generally speaking, and, and I think this is one important point about this is the quality of one's social connections are in sense improved by the authenticity of those. Oh, um, and I think this is where. Both of these things come together. I mean, I'm, again, they're not, and we've said this many times, competing things, but they are really interesting things you need to have a strong sense of. And, and I think there's a point Simon's raised, which I strongly agree with, you need to look at both of those. They require examination if you want to 
have the benefit of good mental health. Nearly out of time. Two more questions. Do we have to be aware of cognitive bias? We all have cognitive bias. If you support any sporting team, you'll howl when the referee makes a decision against your team, but hardly notice when they make a, a dodgy decision in favour of your team. Both people will think the referee... It tells a lot us about James. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone thinks the referee was biased against their team. And we do that with our own actions too. We have a big cognitive bias, don't we, towards interpreting our actions as being fine. I did it and I'm a good person, so it must have been fine. Do we, we in and, trying yeah, to live an ethical life? Well, that's life, true up until the point when we don't, which is yeah. bringing us back to that moment of moral injury. So, so, so do, is it useful to be aware that there is probably a, a, a cognitive bias in favour of me thinking it was fine and take allowance for that when we're judging ourselves? Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you raised it because most people don't concede it at all. Mm. That it, in recent issues in international sport and other areas, you know, did the Australian team do the right thing? Did the English team do the right thing? You know, is that very influenced set, by which one? There are some very settled views on this, aren't there? There, there are. You know, <laughs> clearly if you find yourself, um, as I found myself in London recently, being the only Australian in a backyard watching that particular game, you know, of course, if you're English. It's talking about the Bearstow stumping you know, in the matches. Uh, the Sydney Morning Herald did a th- survey, about 40,000 people, I think. 85% thought the Australians did nothing wrong. I'd suggest that in England, talking about you, cognitive you bias, about it's probably cognitive, reversed. You, what about you quoting that because no, of your cognitive bias? <laughs> I was in the 15% minority. I was fascinated, actually, how prime ministers on either side felt obliged to express the team view, yeah. the the socially acceptable. You know, so cognitive bias, I think, when trying to look at complex things or, or things to be judged, yes, the extent to which people do not state those things, they can't drag them out of be aware of it. The, the team effect or the social effect and say, this is worth reflecting on because something else is at stake here. Whether you think it's the nature of cricket, whether you think it's sportsmanship, whether you think it's – there's something else at stake here that needs to be taken outside of this kind of group effect or the herd effect and examined. So finally, Simon – if people listening to this think, well, it'd be good to have a bit more of an ethical structure in my life and work out how to make my way through these issues when they pop up, the Ethics Centre has a helpline, but it's pretty easy to find out by buying a book or Googling some common ethical tests and structures like yeah. the front page test and yeah, there's just, others just too. Just go to yeah. our website. There's all sorts of material. There's little videos that explain the difference between So it's just the Ethics Centre? Yeah, www.ethics.org.au. Great. Just or the Ethics Centre, it'll pop up. Mm. You can watch the little sort of 30-second videos that explain the difference between an approach based on consequences versus one based on duties or character and things like that. And you know, lots of articles taking on particular issues. So yeah, there's a range of things you can do there, or you can just look more generally and you'll find people. There's tons of content that you can engage with if you want to take a start at thinking about this. And let's go out with Socrates. The unexamined life is not worth living. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Entirely. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you so much for coming in. It was a great pleasure to have you. If you've got any questions or comments, if you'd like to suggest further topics for us to discuss, get in touch at mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. That's mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. Our guest was Dr. Simon Longstaff, uh, Executive Director of The Ethics Centre. Google The Ethics Centre and you will find lots of information on um, how to continue your ethical education. Minding Your Mind is supported by the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Google them or you can call Lifeline on 13 1114.